everyone, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast about philosophy made accessible for listeners trying to figure out exactly who I am. I'm Derek Parsons. And trying to figure out exactly what I am. This is Andrew Graziano. And I gotta say, super thrilled about it. Today we have Sky Cleary to talk to us about her new book that has just come out in the United States, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir, and the Quest for Fulfillment. So we're going to get a little existentialism today. Andrew's thrilled about that. But hey, <laughs> what's going on in your life? Nothing much. I'll keep it super brief. I have returned to school and things are going well. I'm excited to be back and to be entering my last year in college. So that's very exciting. Uh, so how's your new dorm room? How's the situation? Uh, do you have a window? Like, like, uh, it's pretty nice. Yeah, the view, the view is great. I would show the audience, but uh, you know, it's oh, yeah, not, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, I thought about you a couple of weeks ago. We we were down in the medical district for procedure. No big deal. And I remember like two seasons ago, your dorm room window looked out over the all the medical stuff there across from Rice University. Yeah. Um, yep. Anyway, I was like, huh, I wonder which one of those windows was Andrews. <laughs> Because I was yeah, just I'm stuck a- in a waiting room. <laughs> I'm actually pretty pretty close to that same spot, but yeah, I, I hope everything went well. And uh, how's school going? I I know you're you're mentioning to me it's been a pretty fun start. Oh, school's great. I love it, love it. Now it's always so fun to like uh, needle these students, these new philosophy students, on uh, on what they think and what their claims are, and to be that good old gadfly that uh, that Socrates says is good to be if you're a philosopher you, you gotta be careful well socrates was put to death and i certainly don't want that to be my fate but other than that you know it's uh it's hot as hell here it's it's august and late august in houston which means we have at least two more two more months of summer <laughs> yeah the i'm glad we finally got some rain oh lord please i'm not a meteorologist hopefully this drought's been taken care of and and everything's been been going well yeah, it's it's been awful. I won't bore listeners with the the state of my garden in the yard. We're just trying to hang on. Yeah. Well, okay, everyone. Hey, today is about Sky Cleary and her new book, How to Be Authentic. So, I say we get right to it. Hey, everyone. We're thrilled today to have with us. Sky Cleary. Dr. Cleary is a philosopher and author of How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir, and the Quest for Fulfillment, her most recent release, which is out now in the U.S., Existentialism and Romantic Love, and co-editor of How to Live a Good Life, which is the first book in which I became aware of her work. She has been published with the Paris Review, Aeon, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Times Literary Supplement, Ted Ed, New Republic, and others. Dr. Cleary teaches at Columbia University and the City College of New York. She was a McDowell Fellow in 2021 and won a new Philosopher Magazine Writers Award in 2017. Dr. Cleary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek and Andrew. It's lovely to be here. Sky, we're, we're going to get to this new wonderful book you've written, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir and the Quest for Fulfillment. But we love a good origin story. And always to start off with our guests, how is it that you came to philosophy? Like, what is your philosophical origin story? So I flirted with philosophy in my undergraduate degree, but it didn't really grab me then. And it wasn't until later when I was studying for an MBA 
that I came across philosophy again. Um, I studied at Macquarie University in Australia. As you can tell, I'm Australian. Um, and there were philosophers on faculty uh, who were talking about Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre and um, Schopenhauer yeah. and Freud and, and Heidegger. And I was like, wow, I, I, I wish I'd learned this in my undergraduate degree. And so, and also about that time, a book came out called Tete Tete by Hazel Rowley, which was all about the life and love of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. And I mean, it's very juicy, but what really captured me about that was that they were trying to create a philosophy that could be lived, you know, not this like abstract armchair philosophizing that Kant and Hegel did, but they were really thinking about their lives on, on an everyday basis and thinking about relationships in terms of philosophy. And, you know, I had a lot of questions back then about um, relationships, you know, boyfriends and things. And although Beauvoir and Sartre didn't have all the answers, of course, they gave me a bit of a, a sort of a language to start thinking through um, some of these questions that I was, I was grappling with. Oh, wow. And so it was really existentialism that was your uh, inroad into philosophy. It, it was, yeah. And after that, I was hooked. Um, so I asked one of the, the professors after class, I'm like, look, really love this person, Simone de Beauvoir. What else do you recommend I should read? And she gave me a list and I just worked through the list. It started with the mandarins, I think, um, and just kept going. And I haven't stopped. That's fabulous. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And, and I have a question that kind of goes along with that, because it seems like, I guess it seems like philosophy's played a, a part in your life. So I'm kind of wondering, what do you think philosophy's role in society should be? Do you think it should be just kind of strictly a self-help thing? Do you think there's a role for that armchair philosophy like like Heidegger? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a role for both. I think, yeah, sure, we need the academics um, working on journal papers and things. But I think we also need people who are thinking about yeah, how to apply it and how, how it can help us, at, you know, in think about our lives and think about what it means to be human and think about how how we should you know interact with other people and and what we owe to other people I don't know what do you guys think <laughs> you know it's really interesting in the course I teach I wish there was more what I call philosophy of life incorporated into it of course the academic stuff is important and I love that just as much but especially for uh, students who are in their late teens that uh they have lots of questions about how to live. And of course, existentialism falls within that category. And there's so many other great philosophies of life, Stoicism, Aristotelianism, et cetera, that, uh, th that can help answer some of those questions. So I, I do enjoy the logic chomping, as <laughs> a couple episodes we heard uh, Richard Dawkins call it. But, um, but I really do like the embodied lived philosophy as well. Yeah. And I think just further to that, I think it's like important to have the journal articles but also I love the creativity side of the kind of people who are looking at live philosophy like Beauvoir like Sartre like Kierkegaard who are writing through novels and letters and autobiographies and kind of challenging us in, in different ways well that's one of the things I really appreciate about this new book Sky is that this is a, a very accessible book that deals with these questions of how to live in such an open and honest way from Simone and of course, your own uh, experience that you weave into 
the book as well. So we get a, a healthy dose of philosophy and some explanation of those theories, but also it's very applicable. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I was very much inspired by other philosophers like like my friend Massimo Pellucci and John Kag and Gordon Marino, who also mm. are writing in these ways that, yeah, they're looking at the philosophy, but looking at lived examples of, of themselves and, and other people. It's also in the tradition of what Beauvoir was trying to do. She said in one of her student diaries, my philosophy must be from life. Mm -hmm. And so she was actually talking about through philosophy, through her lived experience, through thinking about situations and the nuances of different contexts. And so it's actually pretty important for her to look at philosophy as as well as her life. And, you know, that's what I was trying to do as well. So I'm glad that that aspect came came across. Do you think philosophy can kind of be misused by certain groups or kind of be marketed as philosophy where it doesn't accomplish philosophy's maybe roots or aims? I think what's important is to challenge people to reflect on their lives. And so I think maybe where it becomes you know, subversive or dark is where it's like feeding uh. people what they should think. So I think good philosophy should should provoke people and say, well, look, don't necessarily follow what I say, but but what do, what do you think? Like, here are some guidelines, here are some ways to think about the world, but what do you think? You're an, an individual, you're, but you live in a context of society. Like, how, how do you think of, of this? And so when it becomes more of a, a doctrine, like feeding people things unreflectively, that's where I think it becomes an issue. So we're getting ready to get to, finally, right, this wonderful book. But we do have some very serious matters to settle between the Americans and the UK. I read on the incredibly well-sourced and respected Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy that Americans and Brits pronounce de Beauvoir differently if you're just referring to her last name. Apparently, the UK prefers de Beauvoir, whereas the Americans just say Beauvoir. So you being an Australian living in New York, this, is, this has got to be this has got to be a great tension here within yourself. Where, where, so where do you land on that one? Yeah, what should well, we call her? We should call her Beauvoir, if just referring to her last name. And I think actually the French scholars are coming out and saying now it's important to use just Beauvoir um, mm. because why are we saying people will say de Beauvoir, but they won't put the de in for mm her male contemporaries and, and other male philosophers. So why are we kind of framing her as someone of, you know, higher social standing or, or what does the de even even mean in that context? So, no, I think let's let's all say, I, I want to tell everybody in the UK <laughs> to also please use Beauvoir. <laughs> Those pesky Brits. We'll have to see if any of our, uh, our British listeners uh, write in and tell us what it's really like over there when you pronounce names. That's good. Okay, and the last one, and, and, and only from a design aspect because I just love it so much. There, there's a UK copy of this book and a, and a US copy of this book, and both covers are just brilliant. The US copy is this beautiful green uh, and rich with an illustration of Beauvoir, but the UK version is a striking red to photograph. So which do you prefer? I mean, if you had to choose one you know, to put in your monument someday, which copy are you choosing? <laughs> well, that's a tough question. And I, I have a lot of 
thoughts about book covers. Um, but I will say the US green cover took me a little while to warm up to, but I, I'm warm now. I really like it. It's really grown on me. I do think that the green and the the, the white and the colors and the contrast and the it, there's a lot of that US cover that seems to be about flourishing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, yeah. I love that kind of vibe that it's giving off but i also love the kind of the very as you say the striking and the bold um cover of the uk version which is like red and it's very assertive and it but the, the you know the uk cover i think fits in with some of the other covers in that realm like it's mm. actually quite similar in some ways to the inseparables which is Beauvoir's lost long lost novel that just came out in the oh, last yes. year or so um, so the cover reminds me of that. So I don't know. I, I can't choose now. I love them both. Uh, that's such a diplomatic answer. Well, you know, like you said, m- most things Americans do, you know, people have to warm up to. So, so that's okay. I think it's an appropriate response. So the book orbits around the 20th century existentialist philosopher Simone de Beauvoir and authenticity. But before we get into that, let's talk a moment about existentialism more generally. Can you give us a brief history? Sure. There's no official school of existentialism like there are some some other philosophies like Stoicism and stuff where you can point to specific books and say, oh, here are the the key key ideas. So existentialism is more like a, a group of philosophers who talked about certain ideas and it became popular around, like during and after World War II, with people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Gabriel Marcel, um, Carl Jaspers, Heidegger, Camus. And one of the reasons why it became popular was because I think they were really starting to think about the absurdity of existence. And how do you deal with these extreme situations? And how do you um, process like the horrors of the world? How do you find meaning in life when there's so much terrible stuff going on? And so they kind of talked about similar themes, um, such as you know, freedom and responsibility, kind of two of the, the core themes, but also you know the subjective experience because the Enlightenment was all about objectivity and results, whereas the the Romantics and then the existentialists were like, well, what about emotions and feelings, and what about my my perspective? And so they were talking also about anxiety and death and um, action and you know, figuring out the, the meaning of life. Yeah, so you mentioned there's no official school. And so I thought this, I've read a, a number of books on existentialism over the years, everyone from, oh gosh, well, of course, uh, Camus and Sartre and Beauvoir, but even uh, Miguel de Unamuno, Spanish Catholic existentialist, of course, all the way back to Kierkegaard. So there's no handbook, right? So from your perspective, could you give us like, and you've mentioned some, but maybe you can expand on them a little bit. Could, could you give us your take on what you consider some core tenets? Like, how would I know that I'm being a good existentialist, according to, to Sky? <laughs> okay, doing first, a good of all, job? Yeah, first of all, you're the ultimate judge of what's authentic for you, not me, not Beauvoir. You know, it's not authentic to do what someone else tells you. But thinking about, say, the Getting back to the core of existentialism, you know, and Beauvoir's definition of existentialism is that 
I'll, I'll quote, you know, existentialism postulates the value of the individual as the source and reason for being of all significations and all colors, yet it admits that the individual has reality only through their engagement in the world. And so this is, I think, a really nice definition that sums it up. But what she's really saying is that it's up to us to create our own reason for being here. You know, we're thrown into the world. We, we arrive without a guidebook. And, you know, once we become conscious, you know, it's, it's up to us to, to choose. And those choices only take on meaning by engaging with other people, by engaging in the world, by going out and, and doing things. So I think that's sort of the core of existentialism. But the, I mean, the more popular, like if I had to sum up existentialism in three words, I'd probably go to Jean-Paul Sartre and say existence precedes essence, mm. which is further, it's kind of a distilled version of what uh, Beauvoir was talking about. So we exist first, we're here, we don't choose to be born. But after that, it's up to us to create who we become or create our essence. So one of our favorite topics on the show that we've done a number of programs on is stoicism. And we know that you're, I think you mentioned you're close with Massimo Piglucci, well-known stoic. I think he's actually how I got into stoicism in the first place. I saw one of his books at school and I thought, oh, this looks cool. And so where do you think existentialism and stoicism find a common ground and where might they differ from one another? Yeah, this is a complicated question. And actually, this was the reason why Massimo and I decided to pursue that book, How to Live a Good Life, because we we're on Dan Kaufman's podcast talking about this. And we we're like, oh, we should write a book about that. <laughs> but, you know, there are some overlaps. For example, you know, I see a lot in Beauvoir's philosophy about sorting out what we can control from what we can't and thinking about how we can grasp that window of freedom to take control of our lives while acknowledging that we can't do everything and we can't change everything. But I see, I think, and some versions of Stoicism go into this realm, but Beauvoir goes pretty hard into the realm of saying, well, sure, okay, so there are things that you can't do anything about, but if they're oppressive things, then you need to do something about that. And you might not be able to do anything individually, but it's important to try, it's important to form solidarities. And I might use an example from Jean-Paul Sartre in Being a Nothingness talks about, I think it's a like a mountain crag or something that, you know, if there's a mountain crag in your way, then you just go find another way, go around it. And so that I, I think, and Sartre was influenced by the Stoics as well. Whereas in The Ethics of Ambiguity, Beauvoir says, well, she doesn't quote Sartre exactly, that she uses this example like, okay, if you're banging on a door trying to get through and the door's closed to you, then it's no good just pretending that, oh, the door doesn't matter or the door's not there if that's an oppressive door. And so she's saying what we need to figure out is well, how to open that door so that everybody can get through. So I think that's, that's the main difference. But then again, there are uh, other similarities like Beauvoir explicitly talks about how humanity is like stones in an arch. And she says stones in an arch that no pillars support or something and so she's like all of us individuals are like these little stones and together you know we hold each other up we form this whole that is humanity 
And that's an idea that also the Stoics talked about, which means that, and that's the foundation of Beauvoir's ethics. Like we coexist with others. Other people are there where you know, we're, we're interconnected with them, whether we like it or not. And so therefore we need to take them into account. So one of the things I find interesting about Beauvoir, and, and I don't mean to entirely exclude existentialists that came before her, but it seems that she brings a bit more of an ethical dimension to her existentialism than, say, some of her predecessors and contemporaries. They, they seem to struggle with that a bit. And sometimes that's a criticism of existentialism is that it has difficult time with, uh, with explaining or accounting for morality and, and an ethical worldview. Beauvoir takes that head on, especially in ethics of ambiguity. Could, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. And and this is one of the things I love about Beauvoir so much is because she does acknowledge that, hey, we're individuals, but we're also individuals in context with other people. And how do we handle that so that we can all flourish? And one of the key ideas that I think brings it all together is her notion of intersubjectivity which is mutual recognition and respect for one another's freedom and facticity. And it's really the realization that other people's lives and their choices matter as much as my own. And so this is, I think, the the core thing that that Beauvoir is getting at in, in the ethics of ambiguity. And it's a really powerful idea, I think, that and something that Jean-Paul Sartre didn't talk about. I mean, the main text for existentialism was often, you know, being Mm. in nothingness, which is this giant book um, and very, very heavy to read. Um, But in fact, I was just recently rereading Notebooks for an Ethics, um, which was published posthumously because Sartre always said that, oh, he wanted to write something on ethics but never got around to it. So he just had these notes. But he's talking about intersubjectivity, like all through that. And so I think he came around to Beauvoir's thinking sort of later in life. It sounds like she convinced him. But yeah, he never wrote a comprehensive piece on it. Uh, So of all the existentialists, why Simone de Beauvoir? What is it about her philosophy of life that especially calls to you? I know you mentioned earlier that you were really interested in her work when you were getting interested into philosophy. Yeah, so it was definitely, um, you know, probably my interest in her ethics came, came a bit later, but I was reading about her and how she was talking about you know, fr- this tension between freedom and responsibility, and especially in her analysis of women and how she wrote in The Second Sex, how women are often encouraged to give themselves up for a partner or for their partner's career or take a backseat in their career. And I was sort of seeing some of this going on and I I had questions about that. So it was, you know, she, she, in the second sex, which I discovered later, she pushed back pretty hard, hard against that idea. But I mean, I, I was certainly in admiration of her as a very iconoclastic type figure. You know, she was writing in like the 19... 30s, 40s, 50s, and really, you know, challenging people's assumptions and and kind of upsetting the, the status quo. And she's been credited with kind of sparking a new wave of feminism, which she didn't originally intend to do. But a lot of the later feminists like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem kind of mentioned Beauvoir as one of one of their inspirations. So it was certainly 
partly that. And, and she was so brave. You know, she pushed back on what was expected of her. And I think in, especially in her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre, like they had an open relationship. And can you imagine like in the 1930s and 40s like that, like people just did, even in France, people sure, didn't really do sure. that. And they were so public and they were open about it. And so this was, and she was like, no, I, I know what I want and this is what I want. And I admired that kind of kind of bravery and pushing back against social conventions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were completely scandalous in their time. I mean, that's not to say that they didn't make oh, mistakes. Oh, but, that's uh, actually yeah. one of the things I really appreciate about Beauvoir and her openness of just that journey, right, of being a person in the world, figuring it out as you go, the existentialist mantra. And you're very open about that in the book as well, about some mistakes that she made along the way. We're only human Absolutely. and it's, uh, you know, and part of her philosophy is that sure, where we are the sum of our past actions and they shape who we have become, but those past choices don't determine our future necessarily. And she says that, you know, there really is no mistake too great that you can't change mm. your life going, going mm. forward. So she, that's part of her philosophy of freedom as yeah. well. Well, to continue with uh, sort of some general structure of the book. Many listeners will not have read the book at this point. Tell us a bit about the format of the book. Uh, why not just a biography of Beauvoir or some other sort of focused inquiry on one of her major works? Why this particular book? Why this particular format? Yeah, so there have already been a few really great biographies on Beauvoir. Um, there's the one by Deirdre Bear called, I think, Simone de Beauvoir, a biography, which was written while Beauvoir was still alive, and so it included lots of interviews with Beauvoir, which is incredible. Um, and actually, there was an, another biography that just came out um, a couple of years ago called Becoming Beauvoir by Kate mm. Kirkpatrick, which is fantastic, highly recommend, that also included a lot of other material. Like, there's a lot of Beauvoir's materials weren't published during her lifetime, and so this new biography kind of brings a lot more of her student diaries and things into, into the interview. And, you know, Beauvoir never wrote a comprehensive piece about authenticity. Like she, there's no specific book mm. about that exclusively. But I noticed throughout her work that this, it was a recurring theme and it was sort of an underlying theme in, in across so much of her writing and, and, you know, throughout her whole life. And it was something that I was very um, curious about, especially because, you know, authenticity is one of those words that that I kept hearing over and over again. Like, oh, just oh, just be true to yourself. Oh, just just like yeah, think about um, find your true self and you'll be happy. And I'm like, what? it frustrated me because I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I how do I do that? Oh, introspect and think about like, and I'm just like, so that kind of started me on this kind of obsession where you're trying to figure out, okay, so what did Beauvoir actually say about it and what? how can we sort of think about it from, from her perspective? Yeah. Oh, no, that's a great investigation, especially with uh, the existentialist, well, Sartrean emphasis on bad faith. The, the opposite of bad faith, of course, is being as authentic as you can possibly be. But I also mm -hmm. always had questions about that, exactly what did that mean? 
So yeah, that's a, yeah. that's an excellent subject for this book. Yeah, and I do talk about um, bad faith a, a bit, like because yeah, as you say, it's that sort of the opposite of authenticity. But yeah, and something Sartre focused on a lot. Um, and Beauvoir has lots of examples of, of bad faith throughout her work. But of course, Sartre is you know a bit more of a negative philosopher. <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything controversial no, there. So. <laughs> like, whereas I found Beauvoir's approach much more optimistic. And she's mm-hmm. thinking, okay, well let's look at how we can how we can be authentic. And and I mean Sartre said, I, I'm not authentic. I think he said something like, Oh, I've thought about it and I've paved the way, but I haven't gone there myself. And I mean you know, Beauvoir never said, you know, she's specifically authentic either because, I mean, authenticity is is a process mm-hmm. of creating our essence and, and overcoming ourselves. Yeah, a process of, of becoming, yeah. So we've been flirting with the term authenticity for, for this podcast. So can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Tell me how to live my, my true self. <laughs> Become who you are, Andrew. Well, I can't tell you how to do that specifically. You've got to. You, that's that's up to you. But I can give you a bit of an understanding that that might help, and which was what Beauvoir was trying to do. And I guess so. The definition of authenticity, as I'm using it in in mm-hmm. the book, is that authenticity is the process of creating your essence. So it's a way of expressing your freedom to choose who you become. So this is. I think quite different to at least the versions of authenticity that I sort of had heard um, being used around now, because, you know, often we talk about authenticity in terms of, well, if something's authentic, it's true to the original form, right? Um, But with humans, from an existential view, there's no like original self. There's no true static self at the core of our being that we can refer back to because we're always growing and becoming more than we are. So, and why this is important from Beauvoir's perspective is because not striving for authenticity is like metaphysical malnutrition. To be human is to stretch into the future. It's to overcome the facts of our lives and so if you don't strive to create yourself, if you don't transcend, then you know you risk being a passive object in the world and just a, a thing that that people and society acts on without your consent. Okay, so to to tie that in to say, I guess Nietzsche, and uh, we're going to talk about if we want to bring up the Ubermensch, which of course he never really elaborated too terribly much on that, but that was total becoming to cross that. What was it? Was it a rope? I think uh, stretched between. <sighs> you know, man and ape, and to become that, uh, that Ubermensch. I, but of course, I don't get the sense from Beauvoir that her language or her approaches as, well, bombastic as Nietzsche. Of course, Nietzsche is bombastic anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting observation. Uh, they, they sort of seem to be talking about the same thing, but I feel the approach is an, entirely different. Yeah. And I, I think having uh, not you know, given this a huge amount of reflection, except in this moment, is I think the difference is that, you know, Nietzsche was saying, okay, strive towards the ideal of the Ubermensch. And so, yes, there's that striving, there's that overcoming, there's that transcendence. Whereas Beauvoir was saying, okay, yeah, similar method, but not towards mm-hmm. the same goal mm-hmm. necessarily. She's like, no, be an Ubermensch if you want, don't if you don't want, like that's that where your goal is whatever you choose. I'm not going to tell you like to strive for an Ubermensch. And so I think it's the goal that's different 
but maybe the process is very similar. So Beauvoir's philosophy has a great deal of attention, obviously, on the woman's experience, which is something very different that we don't get from her predecessors in existentialism as well. So for some, this was refreshing and very long overdue. For others, it was uncomfortable and disruptive, right? So could you say something about how some of Beauvoir's concerns related to women, such as mystifications of women, uh, women as the second sex, being othered, and of course, how all this fits in with the pursuit of, of authenticity. So this is where she really gets into these these ideas are in the second sex. And yeah, and when the second sex came out, it caused such a scandal. And she got so much like hate mail and, and trolls like coming at her um, saying that, oh, she's revealed too much about women's lives and all sorts of things. So yeah, it was certainly uncomfortable and disruptive for a lot of people, and but mostly those people who benefited from women being subordinate sure. to men. And I think one of the other reasons, as you point out, you talked about mystifications. And yeah, I think her the fact that she was challenging some of these deeply held beliefs in society was also another reason why <clears throat> she was uh, so disruptive. So for example one of the myths that she was pushing back against was the idea of feminine nature. Feminine nature is often talked about as some kind of inbuilt essence that means that, oh, because you're a woman, therefore you're, you, you should be in caregiving roles and in a way that men don't need to be. So these myths are mystifications about who we are and what we're supposed to be, and they get in the way of authenticity you know, Beauvoir's view that there's no such thing as, as feminine nature or even masculine mm. nature. And these myths are often used as a kind of policing about what people are meant to do with their lives and, and punishes people who, who choose otherwise or makes people who, who don't want to, you know, follow this traditional feminine destiny of motherhood and stuff. Like if they don't do it, then, you know, it sometimes makes them feel um, inadequate but it's also problematic for men too because it limits the way they sure. can express themselves and, and the roles that they can take on. Like, sure, stay-at-home dads are, are becoming more normal, but it's still very rare. Talking about kind of definitions and, and strict definitions, one of Beauvoir's most well-known quotes is, one is not born but rather becomes a woman. And on the surface, it seems that knowing what a woman is should be a relatively simple manner, especially if one is a woman. But you say uh, in your book, for Beauvoir, we can't say what a woman is because there is no definite answer. Can you discuss this a little bit for us? Sure. So she talks about this in the very introduction, the very beginning of the introduction of the second sex. And she's like, okay. And and this is why she wrote the second sex, because she was trying to figure out what is a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? And the question she asks in in the introduction is, well, is it having a uterus? Is it having ovaries? Is it wearing a skirt? Well, no, because there are women who don't have those things. And some females are criticized for, for not being feminine enough or womanly enough, even if their anatomy is female. So think about criticisms like you're not a real woman or or you're not man enough or you run like a girl. Mm. You know, so it's an insult to not perform consistently with the sex organs that you have. And Beauvoir saw this as a problem because it limits our freedom. 
and you know she, she says sure you know we can't deny the the facts of our lives and and you know the the bodies we're born with are a part of our facticity but that shouldn't define how we dress or how we behave or what type of job we take on uh, uh, simone wrote in the 30s and 40s well she wrote really all of her life but uh, some of her major work were done in the 30s and 40s and then becomes very much so a part of the popular imagination in the 50s 60s a great deal of her writing came during that sort of mid 20th century time period uh, and though still there's quite a lot of work to do uh, in western countries women have progressed beyond the social conditions typically placed on them when she wrote some of her most impactful works like I say, still work to do. But but what does Beauvoir have to say to women today? Is the message any different in any in any way? Yeah, I mean, you're right that there has been a lot of progress in, in many realms. And the biggest one I think that she would be pleased with is that there are more women working and, you know, a lot more people have options about the type of jobs they want to have or the type of careers they, or vocations they want to pursue. And there are more women in leadership positions and in politics. I mean, still a lot fewer than men in, in many realms. But, um, but yeah, there is some progress there. But of course, we're going backwards in some ways, um, such as the Roe v. Wade being overturned in the United States. I mean, Beauvoir was there campaigning for um, women to have control over their own bodies in, in the 1960s and 70s. And she was um, part of the movement that allowed for abortion and contraception in, in France in, in the 1970s. So I think what this means in terms of Beauvoir's philosophy is, you know, she said that justice can never be created within injustice. So I think her message today was that, okay, so those sorts of questions, I know it's, well, not necessarily those sorts of questions, but those sorts of issues, I think, in society with rights being taken away, she says the real task of feminism can only be the transformation of society along with the transformation of women's place in it. In The Ethics of Ambiguity, she talks about how if we respect freedom for ourselves, then we must respect it for mm. other people. And if you're taking away um, women's choice, whether to uh, have babies or not, then that's a form of oppression because we have we have the technology and what we're doing is prioritizing clumps of cells over living concrete women. So in the United States, including mass shootings in elementary school here in our own state, Uvalde, Texas, but of course other things such as Roe versus Wade being overturned by the United States Supreme Court, and then you can throw on top of that a, a languishing economy. These seem like particularly fraught times. What might existentialism have to, to say to us about this? Or, or more specifically, what might Beauvoir have to say to women concerned about their right to an abortion or mothers worried about sending their child to elementary school? Yeah, I mean, Beauvoir would have been horrified, I think. And she, she said that, you know, banning abortion is, you know, part of the system that society has put in place to oppress women birth control and abortion allow women to transcend like the brute facts of their bodies. And she was worried that, you know, because she knew and we know that banning abortion doesn't stop it. All it does is make it a class and a race crime because wealthy women will always be able to, to access it. 
um, at least to access it in, in safe ways. Um, so banning it is, is a form of punishment for women and it compromises their authenticity. And another message I think Beauvoir has is that it's, she talks about how it's, and it, actually this is another point she has in common with Nietzsche, and she says that it's a huge responsibility to have a child. And how can you consent to this if you're not ready yourself to take it on? And you know, she says something like, how can you consent to it if you're incapable of helping the child find their place on earth? So you're, if you're swimming in ambiguity yourself, then, you know, and you're not in a position to be able to bring up a child, like she says, how many unwanted pregnancies are endured in mm-hmm. anguish? How many children are born unwanted, unloved, or mistreated? How many households are devastated by excessive burdens? How many women's careers have been shattered and loves been lost? So thought that it was really, you know, forced motherhood is forcing miserable children into the world. And, you know, and the other thing is, especially in the United States, you know, there's so little support for mothers and, and children, like after they're born. So she thought that certainly support, like social structures to support having children are a really important step Mm. and that to deal with oppressions such as these, you know, rebellion is important um, because I think, as I mentioned before, if we respect freedom for ourselves, then we must respect it for other people. And this goes back also to your point about mass murders you know killing other people that's not respecting their freedom that's breaking this intersubjective bond between people that's limiting their freedom that's that's annihilating that's negating their life and so that's that's a clear form of repression as well and so with all that considered is is the encouragement from existentialism or from Beauvoir is is the encouragement rebellion I mean, is, is, is there a message of hope in all of that? Yeah, I think absolutely. Rebellion is a key part of her philosophy mm-hmm. in that, you know, we, we need to push back against injustices. And, you know, she acknowledges that it's really hard to do that on your own. And that's why she says, you know, it's really important to create solidarities and to bond together with other people to to push back against, against tyrants policies that threaten to to oppress. So part two covers a wide range of topics related to Beauvoir's philosophy in the context of situations such as marriage, motherhood, aging, and death. And you weave your own personal stories through these topics. And I personally really enjoyed your own personal reflections on these. So I, th- I thought that was great. But Regardless of my view, is there any one or two topics in Beauvoir's philosophy that particularly stuck to you that you felt especially drawn to in your own personal experience? Yeah, I think the one that surprised me most was aging. Mm. Like I'm sort of getting to, you know, around middle age, which is super weird because I don't feel old. <laughs> I that I I I it was actually just um, recently I was a friend filmed 
a sort of a mini video of me for you know for for the book and I was watching this video which is very painful to watch but I was like wow look at those wrinkles and I was like it's so weird because I don't see them when I look in the mirror and I guess because I'm not really I'm not talking to myself in the mirror and I'm just like wow so that's how how I look to others and this was something that Beauvoir was completely thrown by and she she wrote like it's giant book like called old age or sometimes it's called coming of age 600 pages long about like trying to come to terms with with growing older and she says that growing older it's it's an identity crisis because and she says something like who is this being that i am becoming mm-hmm. a being that is aging before my eyes while i still feel young and, uh, i mean i i feel this so much but I also found her thinking about it very inspiring because she talks about how the older we get, the, the closer we, we come to authenticity, because partly because we're wiser, but also partly because we start to care less about impressing people and fulfilling those expectations. She's like, yeah, young people are always, you know, trying to you know, manage impressions and be good, whereas older people are like, huh more like meh I don't care um so she saw an opportunity for older people to be free to be more responsive to their own needs but of course the problem is we live in a very ageist world that undervalues the contribution and and the lives of of older people so she thought it was you know a, a twofold kind of approach that Yes, we need to rebel against um, age, ageism and age structures, but also we need to think ourselves and make sure we're not internalizing that ageism and not giving up before before we're dead. Yeah, I completely relate to that particular chapter as well. Uh, we may be near uh, in the same boat. Uh, my parents are, are all in their early 80s, so I see it from their perspective, but then you could probably do some quick <laughs> math and kind of ballpark where I'm at in my own life, late in a career and these types of things. And certainly, uh, although all the chapters were very intriguing, aging is, is one that is, you know, kind of the forefront of my uh, mind and experience these days. Same. <laughs> yeah, no, poor Andrew. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what am I going to do for my 22nd birthday? I'm so old. <laughs> but I don't know, Andrew. Like, we're going like, to sit here and laugh and make jokes. But the opposite is true for people your age because yeah. there are some who who will certainly stereotype people of your age uh, with all kinds of expectations. And so really, <laughs> no. I'm not sure where I'm going with that. But I, th- I think that's true. I talk with my students about it all the time. I mean, I think what you were saying, Dr. Cleary, about the there's a lot of impressions that uh, young people want to make. I know like if I ever want to get like on a networking call, I just feel like so, so weird talking to someone older than me. And it, it does feel kind of, I, yeah, I know what you're, I, I, I know I definitely was resonating with what you're saying. So I think it is, yeah, definitely, a, definitely a thing. <laughs> uh, these kids today, you guys, you're ruining our economy. I'm just kidding. Anyway, the kids are our hope. I know. You guys are supposed to save us. I don't know about that. (laughs) Sky, you have a chapter devoted to romantic love. So for maybe young listeners like Andrew, what advice might Beauvoir have for younger people related to romantic love? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'll say one of the things that I learned and that, uh, you know, from teaching 
classes like philosophy of love and sex is that what continues to surprise me is how many people believe in the idea of a soulmate mm. and even if it's not oh there is actually one soulmate like there's something about this no- notion that there's you know a, a perfect person out there for us so Beauvoir was or thought this idea was very problematic she thought it was deceptive because it makes us think that there's one person who who can be everything for us and that's actually really dangerous and harmful Mm. because that's a lot of pressure to put on another person but also when it's not like we're empty vessels you know waiting to be filled where we're constantly growing and evolving and changing and I mean I think this idea came well at least from Plato's symposium where you know Aristophanes myth where there's you know the two we used to be these creatures we got too cocky the gods cut us in half and ever since then we've been looking for you know our other half or, or our soulmate and so Beauvoir was like yeah look okay we need to get rid of that idea and you know there's nothing about authentic relationships that is is based on fate you know there's nothing that's predetermined in our relationships rather so a soul a lover or or this soulmate if you want to call it that it's it's not something it's not someone that we find it's it's something or someone that something that the relationship is something we need to create and you know she talks about how authentic love is is an active engagement and it's it's a choice to create a relationship together and and to grow together not so like yeah let's move away from this oh kind of perfect match kind of ideal well, that's great that's great what do you think about that andrew <laughs> i don't know i haven't really thought about it much to be honest but i appreciate the advice you're just writing research papers <laughs> 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 definitely very countercultural, I think is the word, because I think that is definitely something you hear all your life about trying to find a perfect match or something like that. So, yeah. so I have to ask the question about happiness, of course. <laughs> so happiness is one of those terms in philosophy that engenders multifaceted debates about exactly what's the term, but the concept how to find is socially inescapable. You give it some treatment in the book. So for Beauvoir, how does happiness fit in with the existentialist framework and the pursuit of authenticity? Is happiness just a byproduct of embodied authenticity? Byproduct. Huh, I like that. That's, yeah, that's one way to think about it. But Beauvoir certainly thought that happiness wasn't something that we, we can pursue directly. She wasn't familiar with this idea of like the hedonic treadmill that that I know of that, you know, so she kind of says that if we're pursuing happiness, we're always striving for for more and get the next app and that's going to solve our problems. You know, although, you know, consumer society tries to, to convince us that, you know, we just have to get the next thing to be happy. So I think Beauvoir's idea of happiness, I mean, it wasn't uh, the main thing she researched, but, you know, she kind of talks about how she was kind of obsessed with happiness and kept trying to find it. And I think the conclusion she comes to is that maybe, yeah, it is a side effect of living authentically, because if we embrace our freedom, if we take responsibility for our lives, if we create genuine relationships and and connections with with the world there is a kind of harmony that comes from you know embracing these dimensions of, of our being and you know and but and also coming to terms with the 
ambiguity of existence and accepting that there are there are always going to be tensions between what we want for ourselves and, and what other people want for us and what other people want for themselves. So happiness also comes from accepting that there are always going to be tensions between what we're trying to do, what other people are trying to do, and and our relationships with one another. But if we can sort of embrace this this tension, embrace these ambiguities, then that happiness can can come from that. So a- Andrew, and again, I don't know, I was, here I am speaking for Andrew. He's sort of an Aristotelian, you know, over there. I'm sure he has other elements to him, but I'm kind of a uh, a mixture of existentialism, and I pull some things from Stoicism. And I like some things from Taoism and toss in a little bit of like pragmatism and maybe a dash of transcendentalism. And, and that's kind of like my philosophy of life. Do you identify exclusively like as a as an existentialist? Is that an even is that even an important label for you? Yeah, I, I don't identify as an existentialist specifically. And I mean, the existentialist didn't either. That's true. That's very true. They push back against labels. I mean, Sartre and Beauvoir, Mm -hmm. I guess people kept calling them existentialists. And so they eventually were just like, fine, if you have to call us something, call (laughs) us that. Um, But there's there's a philosophical reason for it, right? Because the idea is that we can't be summed up by, by a label. And this is Sartre's point in, in being a nothingness as well, a labor, a waiter who plays his role to perfection and, and believes that that's, that sums up his, his being. You know, that's a problem because we are this kind of naughty mix of you know, our past that we drag around behind us and the present choices we're making, but we're also this a lack where we're not yet uh, because we're, we're our future and we're our, our intentions as well. Sorry, that was a long answer to... Um, That's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so don't, I don't want to be labeled like that. Um, and no, and I also think that I'm always in question or I want to always be in mm, question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really like a lot of what the existential philosophers talked about. And I would happily call myself an existential philosopher, I think, but... I don't, I mean, they didn't have all the answers and they, they don't have a, a philosophy to explicitly subscribe to as well. So mm-hmm. um, I think I'm, I'm open. I'm still looking for, <laughs> for possibilities. Perfect. And yeah. Uh, gosh, this is such a fun conversation. I hate to end on such a serious note, but we always have this, uh, this final question that we like to ask. And this is such a great question for an existentialist, right? So, so here's, here's the final question. Sky. what does it mean to be human? That is a big question. Yeah, it is. Well, for, I mean, for the existentialist, there's, it's not like that there's a specific human nature, but to be human is to transcend beyond the facts of our existence. And so I think to be human is like this complex mix of, of freedom and facticity and, and being and nothingness. Marvelous. Yeah. Okay, Sky, thank you so much for being on the show today. An absolute thrill for me and Andrew, I know, and for all of our listeners. Uh, go out and buy this book, How to Be Authentic. It comes out August 16th in the United States. So when this airs, it will have been out for a week. And so, Sky, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Derek. And thank you, Andrew. This was really fun. 
Well, that was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much again, Sky, for appearing on the podcast. Everybody, once again, please check out Guy Cleary's new book, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir, and the Quest for Fulfillment, either with the green or the red cover, wherever you are. Yeah, absolutely thrilled to have her on the show today. Hey, everyone out there, we're so happy and thankful that you listened. Thanks for giving us some of your very important time to do so. Thank you for checking us out of the future. Thank you for checking us out on our Instagram page, our Twitter page, and for emailing us in at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Thank you so much for all of that. And we'd love to thank our good buddy Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. It's so fantastic. And uh, very groovy. Very groovy. I say groovy. I mean, it is groovy. I don't know. It just like inspires me to say yeah. groovy. I'd like to investigate the epistemological claims of the word groovy. <laughs> nah, I actually don't want to do that at all. All right, give us the tagline. Well, once again, thank you so much for listening. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. All thank right. You. See ya. <laughs>